Welcome back to The Re-Education. Today's show is a monologue-only episode, and it looks at content moderation on the internet, something we've spoken about before, and how the policing of opinions and speech on major social media platforms in recent years really betrays the founding ethos of the internet. Some of this is based on my February essay for Commentary Magazine, American Nomenclatura, but I can assure you that a lot of this is original material with a lot of archived audio. Thing that I yes. think is great about Twitter, and, and I'm not, I haven't Twittered yet, but now that we've all learned to Twitter, I'm Twittering away after yeah. the show. But yeah. I think it's, um, there's one the thing name. I read about it. Uh, um, if there's a, uh, someone that's escaped from prison or there's a rapist in your neighborhood, that kind of Twittering thing I think is fantastic Amazing. for a community, yeah. that you can say, watch out, there's yeah. a predator that's right. been seen, or there's an accident. And give a picture. And you can even picture, give a picture. Which I think yeah. is fantastic. It's also it's great that the messages have to be short, too. Oh, but you can only type 140, know, 140 characters, characters, which I also think is genius. Yes. You don't get these yeah. long messages. Have that. you heard? That's yeah. a really good point, though. Have, like have, has law enforcement in areas like started using this? Like Actually, kidnapping yes. and, thing, and missing people? And yes, law enforcement, fire departments. Actually, in the wildfires in, uh, in California. Southern California, right. Uh, in California. Um, the Los Angeles Times, Red Cross, and, and the fire department were all using Twitter to disseminate information. That was Ev Williams on Oprah Winfrey's show way back in 2009, when the world believed that Twitter, a company he co-founded, was largely a social good, a net plus for humanity, a chance to democratize the media, to use a favorite phrase of Evan Williams. So let's savor the irony that at least back in 2009 on Oprah's show, one of the supposedly good things about Twitter was the ability of anonymous individuals to let the internet know when a rapist or serial killer was on the loose. It would take about six years for the social media companies to understand that this feature was really a bug and that bad actors could destroy reputations with a few keystrokes and a little viral luck. None of this, though, was on anyone's radar back in 2009. Social media had a kind of halo. It was a celebrity magnet. Everybody seemed to love it. Politicians from both parties flocked to Twitter, Facebook, and the social media companies. It was the future. Now, I love this anecdote. It's from Nick Bilton's 2013 book called Hatching Twitter. I really recommend it. It's a good history. And here is the writer sharing an anecdote about Snoop Dogg. You know. So here's the scene. Snoop and his entourage walk past the Twitter cafeteria. And here I will quote from Bilton's book. As they wandered past a DJ table and microphone set up in the cafeteria, Snoop stopped in his tracks. Yo, 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 he said, his arms outstretched on either side. I can get on that, he asked, pointing to the turntable. But before the engineer, who was taking them around at the time, had a chance to answer, Snoop had a microphone in his hand and music was blasting out the speakers. The sound flowed through the hallway. Employees quickly started to venture into the cafeteria. Before long, people's phones were out taking pictures, shooting videos, and of course tweeting. Then, like a magician pulling a rabbit out of thin air, Snoop Dogg had something else in his hand. A large blunt the size of a Sharpie pen. Then a lighter. And a few seconds later, he was smoking weed ferociously. Seeing this, his entourage assumed it was okay to light up in the Twitter offices. So naturally, they pulled out joints that had been in their pockets or tucked behind their ears. In a matter of minutes, the cafeteria had become the stage for an impromptu Snoop Dogg concert, with a dozen large blunts being passed around among famous rappers and Twitter employees. 
most of whom were dancing, some grinding on each other. A few girls stood on cafeteria tables, their arms waving in the air as if they were atop a large speaker in a nightclub. Not at work. All right, that's the quote. Now, eventually, a lawyer broke up this party, and employees were instructed to take down their tweets and photos from the internet. But wow, Twitter seems like a pretty fun place to work in the early 2010s. And the closeness with the celebrities, at least, was one of the hallmarks of Twitter in those days. Everybody seemed to want to invest in the company, too. Kanye West, for example, at one point offered to buy it. In 2009, Twitter, I think, was valued at $4 billion without having ever turned a profit. That is how hot Twitter was. So here is an interview. This is from 2010 with Ashton Kutcher, who the year before challenged CNN to a contest to see who could get to 1 million followers first. Kutcher won. Anyway, here he is. Another thing you do that I think kind of makes you a really normal guy is you interact with so many regular people on Twitter, right? Yeah. I'm going to tweet right now. I'm with at A plus K. At A plus K. Right now. <laughs> OMG. You're, you just OMG'd? I did. Oh, so LOL. Really well. So how many Twitter followers do you have? I like about 5 million or so. 5 million people following you on Twitter. Yep. And, and what is that like for you? I mean, do you ever get creeped out by that idea? Nope. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I really see it as like it, it's a great place where you, to do good things in the world. Now, I want to dwell on that phrase. A great way to do good things in the world. In 2023, this seems hopelessly naive. Today, many look at social media giants like tobacco companies in the 1990s. They are like tobacco companies for the mind. They addict us to outrage and half-truths. They cloister us in roving bands of digital tribes. But in 2010 and 2011 and 2012, to a certain extent, social media apps like Twitter, well, they were seen as the agents of democratic change. I mean, they were disrupting the way we thought about things, but that was all seen as a very good thing. Anyway, here's a 2011 report from the UK's Channel 4. Well, the Arab Spring swept away long-established dictatorships by young revolutionaries who didn't accept the status quo. And they were savvy. They tapped into social networking, whether it be Facebook or Twitter, to achieve change, organizing events. And they used Twitter to share it to a global audience right here. And as Matt just mentioned, the Occupy movement really mirrored this, using some of the same techniques, meeting in squares, arranging that, and here they are in, in, in Wall Street, and sharing it again to us on, on social media, actually disintermediating the media companies, people like us, they can just reach us anyway, just through, through, through Twitter. This techno-optimism, well, it was the ethos that built the internet as we know it. To understand why, we have to go back to that golden era known as the 1990s. Yes, the baggy jeans and flannels, the fear and disdain for people who had sold out, alt-rock, gangster rap, 90210, Seinfeld. Those were the days America felt like it was on autopilot after the collapse of the Soviet Union. A Democratic president, Bill Clinton, was ending welfare as we knew it and committing to balance the budget, while initially lying, at least, about a very embarrassing affair with his intern. And in the process, really kind of probably becoming what I would say is the sort of apex of neoliberalism in the United States. Now, in this period, the fight over speech and expression was almost a mirror image of what it is today. The liberals of the 1990s celebrated the right of corporations to sell profane, violent, misogynistic music. It was the social conservatives. Now, I should say social conservatives, but also, you know, a number of Democrats like 
see Dolores Tucker. So it wasn't from a party perspective, it wasn't split down between Republicans and Democrats. Rather, I'm talking about the idea that like you know, the liberals, the progressive types of the 1990s were for like the free marketplace of ideas. And the social conservatives wanted to shame companies who sold what they considered to be poison to kids and to affix a warning label. They wanted to require television makers to have a V-chip that would allow parents to screen out violent programming. So we got into some of this on my episode as speech is violence regarding the junk social science that said violence on television was responsible for increased violent crime. But anyway, the point is that the culture war of the 1990s that pitted the rights of parents and communities to protect their children from the broader culture, you know, was pitted against the rights to free expression for artists and the idea of having a free marketplace of ideas and culture. And that was an important factor in the dawn of the internet. So to get a sense of these tensions, I want to play now two clips from the great triangulator himself, Bill Clinton, at the signing ceremony of the Telecom Act of 1996. This was a wild scene, by the way. It was at the Jefferson Room of the Library of Congress. If you're ever in Washington, D.C., I recommend going there and seeing it at least once because on the ceiling you can see kind of like, you know, a, a version of the history of like all enlightenment going back to the Greeks. It's a really cool place. Anyway, in this ceremony on a clunky old television that were like these giant cubes, if you remember before flat screens, I was wheeled out near the dais and a small video on the screen of Lily Tomlin. And she was in character playing a kind of clueless telephone operator. She was trying to connect Al Gore to a video call with a room full of high school students on another computer. Now, today we would recognize this as a boring Skype or Zoom or whatever. In 1996, this was like the height of high tech. So Tomlin joked there that Clinton and Gore were now infonauts. Get it? Anyway, it was before anyone even thought of cybernaut, whatever. So here is Clinton explaining, in my view, quite presciently, the promise of the Internet in 1996. Keep in mind, this is before there was a Napster. It's before there was any online videos, before Skype. So here he is. Soon, working parents will be able to check up on their children in class via computer. Families head off, heading off on vacation trips will be able to program the fastest route in their car computers, thanks to the work the Department of Transportation is now doing. On a rainy Saturday night, you'll be able to order up every movie ever produced or every symphony ever created in a minute's time. For those of us who like to watch too many movies and listen to too much music in a single sitting, that may be a mixed blessing. But Clinton wasn't done, because the new statute that he was signing, Telecommunications Act of 1996, it also contained what was known as the Communications Decency Act. And that was the result of social conservatives successfully getting legislation in this huge bill that would ban effectively pornography on the internet. It was basically profane material on the internet. And it also included that provision that we were talking about, the V-chip and so forth. So here is Bill Clinton sort of extolling the virtues, you know, triangulating once again, and extolling the virtues of this element of the legislation. We know the information age will bring blessings for our people and our country. But like most human blessings, we know the blessings will be mixed. We also know that the programming beamed into our homes can undercut our values and make it more difficult for parents to raise their children. Children sometimes are exposed to images parents don't want them to see because they shouldn't. A comprehensive study released just yesterday confirms what every parent knows. Televised violence is pervasive and numbing, and if exposed constantly to it, 
young people can develop a numbing, lasting, corrosive reaction to it. Televised violence in too much volume and intensity over too long a period of time may teach our children that such violence has no consequences and is an unavoidable part of modern life. All right, so I want to now read from my commentary essay, American Nomenclatura, on what happened next. Quote, In 1997, the Supreme Court struck down most of the Communications Decency Act on First Amendment grounds. What remained was a compromise crafted by Representative Chris Cox and Senator Ron Wyden. Internet service providers would be encouraged to enforce terms of service to limit the most offensive material from being posted. In turn, according to the language of the new bill's Section 230, remember that, no provider or user of interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider, end of quote. This formulation, which meant that internet platforms were to be treated pretty much as though they were the new era's telephone wires and exchanges, rather than purveyors of the material posted on them, made the internet, as we know it, possible. Everything from internet pornography to the comment sections on news sites to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram owes a debt to Section 230. Now, and end of quote. Now, I should say there were there was exceptions to this as well. And it's important that you keep in mind there was always an effort, basically, that anyone who was, you know, the, the, the original Internet companies had to police against copyright violations that led to the big standoff with Napster in the late 1990s. That was, of course, this file sharing site that allowed you know people to download free music, which the record companies did everything they could to try to destroy. But the point is, is that at least in those early days when everybody was first getting online, Hate speech, harassment, doxing, disinformation, conspiracy theories, foreign propaganda, all of it, the stuff that will get you kicked off of Facebook or Twitter today, maybe, was fine. It was a bit of a free-for-all. Okay. All of this is important because Section 230 also shielded social media companies from liability for their decisions to take content offline that ran afoul of their rules. So you couldn't sue, you know, a Facebook or, you know, a Google or whatever if they said, no, we can't run that, you know, as if you're being discriminated against or something like that. At first, this created the free-for-all that we were talking about. The internet, you know, was disruptive, and its disruptions were seen as largely a good thing. And you could see this in the original slogans of the social media companies. Facebook, you know, had move fast and break things. Twitter executives would describe their company as the free speech wing of the free speech party. And in particular, I should say Twitter was a platform that really celebrated the fact that they had minimal content moderation. I mean, there's a famous post on the Twitter blog by Biz Stone, one of the founders of the company, called Let the Tweets Flow. And it was about how they were going to be transparent about when foreign governments requested, you know, for tweets to be removed from the platform. But for the most part, they really did not want to get into banning content or removing content based on, you know, what it said. And they were going to allow as much of it as possible. Now, this obviously, as anybody who's on Twitter today knows that it's not the case today, or it was not a case until Elon Musk bought the company, but that was how it was in those early years. Okay, over time, social media companies realized they had this problem. And so new rules were imposed. For example, they, the social media companies, you know, beginning in probably 2013, 2012 or so, they began to deactivate al-Qaeda and ISIS accounts. This is something that was done with, in a kind of partnership with the FBI and the CIA and the intelligence community, something that has become a huge thing now with the Twitter files. Well, it starts in this element of the war on terror. New rules and procedures were also adopted against harassment. I mean, a big trigger for this that we might have forgotten is go back and look up Lindy West's 2015 episode of This American Life. 
where she talked about an account that was set up to impersonate her father who had died the year before. This prompted the company to establish a proactive policy to root out harassers and harassment campaigns instead of just relying on complaints from individual tweeters. Now, I should say that on the broader question of this new connected world, there were some surprising voices urging a little bit of caution, at least. Here I want to credit Hillary Clinton. I know, I know. I am surprised when I dug this up as well. And here she is in 2010 as Secretary of State, and she said this at, a, at the now defunct museum in Washington, D.C. Because amid this unprecedented surge in connectivity, we must also recognize that these technologies are not an unmitigated blessing. These tools are also being exploited to undermine human progress and political rights. Just as steel can be used to build hospitals or machine guns, or nuclear power can either energize a city or destroy it, modern information networks and the technologies they support can be harnessed for good or for ill. Credit where it's due. Hillary Clinton is absolutely right in warning against kind of Panglossian techno-optimism of Silicon Valley that was all the rage in 2010. But there is also an irony, and this comes in when, with what she says next, and I'm going to play this now. And technologies with the potential to open up access to government and promote transparency can also be hijacked by governments to crush dissent and deny human rights. In the last year, we've seen a spike in threats to the free flow of information. China, Tunisia, and Uzbekistan have stepped up their censorship of the internet. In Vietnam, access to popular social networking sites has suddenly disappeared. And last Friday in Egypt, 30 bloggers and activists were detained. One member of this group, Bassem Samir, who is thankfully no longer in prison, is with us today. Okay. Now, the irony, of course, is that it's Hillary Clinton, in some ways, that sets off after the 2016 election and her campaign put out the bogus story of Donald Trump's collusion with Russia. That was There was a very real Russian campaign, as we've gone over, but the idea that, that Trump was in cahoots with the Russians or behind this or part of the plot is, was disinformation. That was opposition research initially that was purchased by the Clinton campaign. And all of that, I guess you could say, panic after she loses in 2016 really created the conditions under which the social media companies were coming under enormous pressure to moderate more and more content. That's why I say it's iron. Anyway, with that in mind, it's worth asking, going back to Hillary's quotes here, has the U.S. government become an enemy of free expression in the way that the despotic regimes described by Clinton 13 years ago were? Now, I, my answer to this is not quite, but it's important to look at this because as Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi and others have shown in their wonderful reporting on the Twitter files, there is a kind of new public-private partnership today to protect the rest of us from all manner of wrong thing. That is something that I think is really, really important. Again, I would recommend going back to my American nomenclatura essay where I get into a lot more detail on this. Okay, now the problem with all of this pressure to moderate more and more online content from various things, by the way. It's not just the FBI going through and finding, you know, allegedly foreign propaganda. It's not just the CDC, you know, putting out guidance and, and noting that, you know, various doctors who disagree. It's not just, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center who is like looking for online racism or it's, it's, it's all of it combined is what I'm trying to get at. Is that when you have this huge sort of, you know, content 
moderation industrial complex. It not only does it end up stifling factual information, okay, that that gets either, you know, banned or shadow banned or whatever that, you know, could have maybe corrected disastrous public policy decisions. Here, I'm thinking about the unnecessary closure of schools after the fall of 2020. But it also created an environment where disinformation in the name of fighting disinformation was allowed to flourish online because it was coming from an expert class. So we've seen a lot of this recently. I mean, for example, the justification for throttling and banning distribution of the New York Post expose on Hunter Biden's laptop in October 2020 was that it was Russian disinformation, even when the FBI's own investigation into Hunter had confirmed much of the material on the computer. They had the laptop. So, and it was bolstered by former senior intelligence officials signing a public letter that claimed that the laptop had all the hallmarks of a Russian operation. And that turned out to be a kind of misinformation. Here is Matt Taibbi on Fox News explaining his most recent reporting on Hamilton 68. And that was a secret dashboard that was tracking alleged Russian influence online because they had some secret formula. Anyway, I will let Matt explain it here. So uh, in the early Trump years, there was a, an organization called Hamilton 68 that was the source of probably hundreds of news stories over the course of a period of years that was allegedly tracking Russian bots. Uh, their secret sauce was a list of 600 accounts they said were linked to Russian influence. Well, in the Twitter files, we found the list. And the list, uh, let's just say, is mostly bereft of Russians, but is full of real Americans. And what they basically did is a fraud. They, they took ordinary conversations of ordinary conservatives, mostly, uh, and essentially just called it Russian influence. Okay, now in this case, privately at least, Twitter resisted Hamilton 68. But Twitter did not publicly call them out. I mean, they probably should have. It determined that its list of accounts echoing Russian propaganda were not controlled by Russia or Russians. I mean, that is, I'm in agreement that this thing looks like a scam. None of this is, by the way, to say that the Kremlin doesn't engage in propaganda campaigns. Of course they do. Or for that matter, the more sinister hack and leak operations as they did in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. So it's not like an either or. There's no such thing as, you know, Russian mind games or the, you know, you have to go into the super overreaction paranoid nonsense. But I would say that the obsession and freak out over Russian influence campaigns, which has, you know, really been a fact of American political life for pretty much like 100 years at least. Well, it spurred an industry that engaged in exactly the thing it was trying to fight. And that is these disinformation experts. We've covered it in earlier episodes. And all of this, in my view, gets to the central truth about the current moment for our hyperconnected world and in social media. And it's that all censors assume that our minds can be molded like lumps of clay, that if only the public could be protected from lies, hate, heresy, people would know the truth. And it's this arrogance, and that is such arrogance. Well, it makes us stupid because our minds are not empty boxes to be filled with truth or lies or propaganda. We engage with the information that we find in the world, and the truth is not something that is dictated from on high. It is demonstrated and tested time and again. In 2023, we need to relearn these lessons. Because in the 1990s, if we were as obsessed as we are today with protecting people from dangerous content or disinformation, we would have never had an internet at all. And the world, in my view, would have been much poorer and dumber for it. What if half the things ever said turned out to be a lie? How will you know the truth? 
If you were given a whole thing and when you stop to wonder why. But how will you know the truth? Everybody's got a right to love. Everybody's got a right to lie. The choice you make, it ain't no piece of cake It ain't no motherfucking piece of pie This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast, and if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing. 